Greetings and welcome back to the Lead Inclusively podcast channel. We are very excited today to have Joel Peterson with us. Um, Joel is an expert on trust um, as well as several other things related to, to leadership. And today, trust is extremely important uh, to us at Lead Inclusively and all of our client organizations because without trust, we can't create an environment of inclusion. So Joel is the perfect expert to, um, to share with us his thoughts about the principles of trust based on his new book, The 10 Laws of Trust. So a little bit about Joel. First of all, Joel, welcome, and thank you so much for being with us today. Nice to be here, Denise. Um, so Joel, as I'm sure most of you know, is the chairman of JetBlue Airways. He is also the chairman of the Hoover Institution and the founding partner of Peterson Partners, which is a Salt Lake City-based investment management firm. It has over a billion dollars under management. Uh, he's a business leader. He's an investor. He's also a professor who's worked firsthand with over 2,300 businesses, hundreds of partners, and thousands of leaders. Um, since 1992, Peterson has been on the faculty of the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. He teaches courses in real estate investment, entrepreneurship, and leadership. He was the former original seed venture investor for several unicorns, including Bonobos and Assurian. Um, they were all helmed by former students. He is um, he formerly served as the chief executive officer of Tramwell Crow Company, the world's largest private commercial real estate developer development firm at that time. Um, he earned his MBA from Harvard Business School and received his bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University. Joel has uh, been awarded the 2005 Distinguished Teaching Award uh, and several other awards um, over, the, over his illustrious career. Um, he, um, uh, he has written this book, as I mentioned, uh, The Ten Laws of Trust, and that highlight, highlights how high-trust organizations uh, increase the general levels of happiness and confidence related to making decisions, as well as taking calculated risks and creating durable and predictable uh, cultures that enable long-term business success. So without further ado, uh, I introduce to you Joel Peterson. Joel, is, have I left? anything out that's important about your background that you want to share? Oh, that was a really nice introduction to these. Okay. All right. Nice with you. Wonderful. So, so again, with regard to the 10 laws of trust, um, can you share with me, please, um, why did you write a book about trust? And then ultimately, uh, why did you decide to expand upon it? Well, I think trust is the uh, most important currency that any leader has. Uh, high trust organizations tend to perform better than low trust organizations. High trust leaders uh, are more effective. Uh, people who work with them are happier, more productive, more confident. They innovate. Um, I know you're a lawyer, but they have to use. They don't have to use as many lawyers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, to me, it's just it's a much happier, more productive way to live if you can figure out. And the good news is, uh, leaders can be intentional about building high trust organizations and about becoming more trustworthy themselves. So this book is a manual to help people uh, develop high trust organizations. So what are some of the principles of trust that a leader can focus on in order to establish a high trust organization? 
Well, it starts with their own integrity. And integrity is really that there's not a gap between what you say and what you do. You deliver on promises. And it really means that people don't have a big gap between their professional lives and their private lives. Mm -hmm. You know, people are smart. They pick up discontinuities. And so it starts with the leader having this kind of integrity. And I don't mean just honesty, kind of a structural integrity around their lives. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of the beginning. Uh, and then there's a whole series of other ones, but they relate to, to the 10 laws. I mean, these are really the 10 sort of underlying principles that uh, underpin a, a high trust organization. So uh, using the example of, you know, not having this tremendous gap between your personal life and your professional life, I guess uh, what you're talking about is is walking the talk. So in the case of of saying that, you know, of, of trying to create the brand that you're an inclusive leader, let's say, um, if, if your behavior uh, in your private life or, you know, um, at any given, you know, public event or restaurant even or general interaction with the public does not um, yield the, the the behavior that you're you're saying that you believe in and espouse that that gap is going to create a, uh, a, a a diminution in trust. Yeah, there's a discontinuity that people pick up on, and, and it goes beyond just you in public. It it may be within your own family. How mm -hmm. you treat your spouse? Mm -hmm. How you mm -hmm. treat your kids? I mean, there's kind of got to be an integrity to the person that is trying to build a high trust organization. They have to be trustworthy themselves across all of di all dimensions. So, um, how how big a problem is this really? I mean, are, are we making a big deal out of this, or is this is this something that really is you know a, a endemic, uh, you know, in terms of a um, an organizational or a leadership issue? It's a huge problem. Look at Congress, if you don't think. Uh, I mean, people can't get anything done. Where there's not trust, people cannot get anything done. They spend their whole life in power politics. And uh, it just doesn't work. People aren't as happy. They're not as productive. They don't address issues. Mm -hmm. They spend time uh, in legal documents and compliance and all kinds of things that uh, slow everything down. Yeah, so you met you mentioned before that you know as a, you know in terms of my background that I am a lawyer and that's one of the reasons why I left the practice of law to be honest with you is that I really couldn't be happy with that constant sense of mistrust and having to um you know protect yourself or your client at every given moment instead of leading with um you know uh sort of abundance and uh you know as opposed to scarcity or trust as opposed to mistrust um, I mean, uh, trust trust is earned for sure, and I think it's easily lost by um, by just you know one one breach of it. So I think uh, we we do need to be diligent. Uh, but and and hopefully, what you're saying is that once we are diligent, that the organizational culture reflects that, and then it becomes kind of something that becomes perpetuated. But it takes constant diligence. I mean, you really have to be careful. And, you know, one of the things the lawyers have taught me over the, the years is this idea of remedies. You know, you always have to know that there are remedies and there are remedies for breaches of trust, too. There are ways that you can heal. You can heal personally and you can heal in an organizational sense. Uh, but you don't want to spend your whole life on remedies and on wariness and on protections. It, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of time. Agreed. Expensive and uh, not that much fun. 
Um, let me let me ask you what uh, what role does transparency um, play in this in this process? It's huge. Um, in fact, we tend to trust people who are vulnerable, who are humble, who let us know what they're thinking. You know, I always say that when I ask somebody for feedback, I give them the results of that feedback so they know. So if they say, Joel, you need to work on X, Y, and Z, I tell them, okay, I need to work on X, Y, and Z. Here's what I'm doing. And they feel like the feedback is going somewhere. Something is being done. I asked students one time in a class I was teaching what I could do differently. And I had one student say to me, more of us, less of you. I thought that was great. So I shared that back. Interesting. Interesting. So expand upon that. What did they mean by that? That they wanted to do more talking. They wanted to have it be more interactive. They wanted me to listen to what they were saying. Fewer lectures. Uh, and they were absolutely right, and I changed. You know, it's fascinating to me that you say that because I think as leaders, and particularly thought leaders, we we feel, and I'll speak for myself, but I think this is what you're saying, is that we feel that we have so much to give, that we want to share that so so much and so deeply that we don't realize that the most important element of the people that we're trying to influence is that they have a voice. For sure. Yeah. One thing I always say in, in teaching, so I've been teaching for the last 20 year, 27 years, as you mentioned, but I always say that uh, I try to make every student in the class make a noise within the first three sessions. Wow. And I find once they've participated, once they have skin in the game, they're with me forever. It's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say that, you know, in, in, in circling back to the transparency issue, um, transparency, well, first of all, let me just share with you, we, we have something called the three R's of inclusion, and it's receptive, reflective, and revitalizing for what that's worth. And, the, you know, the, the receptive part of that is being accepting of, of the differences in others and also curious about those differences. But the reflecting part of that is um, being aware of our own biases. And the second piece of it is being tra- transparent about our decision-making um, and, and, and being able to be transparent because our decisions are based on facts um, you know, supportable facts um, and not uh, based on other reasons like our own self-interest or our, you know, general feelings of, of affinity to people who are like us. So, I mean, a big part of the transparency issue, um, I think, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, is, you know, um, can we be transparent because we have nothing to hide? Yeah, so I, it's really pretty powerful when you do that. Uh, so I have these phenomenal leaders that come into class. We had Alan Mulally last week. I was, love him. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> but uh, students can ask any question. We, we don't allow anybody to come into the class, no auditors. Nobody can tweet anything. Mm-hmm. So we can ask these public companies, senior executives, any question they want. And they Did, did Alan come in and speak? Alan came in and speak. Oh, I mean, we've had Ariana Huffington. We've had Steve Ballmer. We've had, I mean, it's kind of the who's who. And it's, so it's a phenomenal class and it's hard to get into, but for the class, it's pretty amazing. And they can ask any question they want. And over time, the students always prefer those who are most vulnerable or most transparent. And, uh, and I think that builds trust. So that would be one of the elements, you know, and, and so actually in the law of trust, uh, I call it, you know, be humble, yep. show humility. 
Yep. Humility will actually build trust. People who are proud, who can't admit mistakes and everything, they actually destroy trust. They really do. Um, it's fun, you know, it's it's so interesting that you mentioned Alan because Alan Mullally, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know him, he's the former CEO of Ford and a phenomenal brand of leadership. He is an MG100 and I'm, I'm lucky enough to be on that uh, team. Uh, so he's on uh, Marshall Goldsmith's legacy uh, oh, yeah. team and so am I. That's how I know him. And he has been just the most incredible inspiration uh, for leadership. So I'm thrilled to death that that uh, that, that you got to work with him um, as well. It's a small world. Um, let me ask you, do you think that most um, middle managers, um, you know, not just senior executives, but middle managers are aware of, of the scope of the problem of trust? Is that on their radar? You know, they may not put, be able to put words around it, but they realize when people aren't connecting because they're running teams. And so mm -hmm. middle managers are interpreting upper management and they're trying to execute through other people's work. And so that's really the essence of trust, both north, south, and east and west. You've got to get all the way around the compass so they know when, when there's a breakdown in trust. They may not put those words around it, but they're very aware of it. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, and what about, um, what about, um, you know, we, we used to have, I don't know, some people would say we have more silos now uh, with technology rather than less. And a, a lot of people would say that we have reduced um, silos in the sense that, you know, everything that we do uh, has the potential of being public, right? If, I, if I'm, you know, shouting on the street, uh, somebody could be taking a video of me with their cell phone and maybe it'll go viral um, and maybe my brand of leadership will be impacted because they see, you know, this Denise Hummel who says that she's one kind of leader but is really another. Uh, but what, what, are, what are your thoughts? Are we having more silos in this respect, less silos? Both are happening at the same time. So I think uh, social media connects us in a lot of ways, but it also makes us talk to ourselves and makes people more <laughs> wary. And I actually think the net effect hasn't been to increase trust. It's probably to make people more wary. Mm -hmm. uh, but it does both things. So I think with Airbnb and, and um, Lyft and Uber and all these things, we're all trusting other organizations to do things. We're in a, we're in a world that is trusting mm -hmm. a lot of things, but it's also a world where people have learned to be more wary. And so I think both are happening simultaneously. Yeah. This is one of the reasons trust is such a vital uh, topic to understand. You know, at least, I mean, I guess there's some, there's possibly something to be said about the fact that it increases accountability because of that, you know, general exposure. But I guess with the way things have been in the media l lately, you know, I hate to use the term fake news, but you know what I mean? It's hard to know what to believe. Right. So I guess, I guess what you're saying is that we just have to be diligent about our, our own behavior, you know, as close to 24 seven as possible, recognizing, of course, none of us are perfect. Um, we're all going to end up making mistakes and um, engaging in ways that maybe we wish that we hadn't <clears throat> on a bad day or what have you. But 
but just trying to be as diligent as possible um, obviously goes um, a long way. Um, so you brought yeah. up something, Denise, that might be interesting to talk about here, and that is this idea, because we're not perfect, that you have to fix breaches of trust immediately. You fix them when they're small. Many of them come from a misunderstanding or an intervening variable, or there's just some reason that we didn't deliver on a promise. And what people sometimes do is they let that fester. Mm -hmm. And what happens is it doesn't get better if it festers. So my experience is apologize immediately if you're the one that's dropped the ball. And if somebody else has, go to them and try to understand, but fix it because it yep. won't get better. Yep. So that's one of the laws of trust. If you want to be trustworthy and have a high trust organization, you got to fix breaches. Yeah, I mean, there are some good examples from industry in life sciences, manufacturing, et cetera, uh, the automobile industry, where when, when, when people try to either ignore a breach of trust um, or, um, or, you know, or hide it, uh, it always backfires. And when they actually take accountability immediately, um, it, it tends to mitigate uh, the impact um, on the organization. So I think what you're saying has, is definitely borne out, um, you know, in reality across industries um, very, very, very clearly. So I, I had an entrepreneur in class just yesterday, and she was saying that uh, she, her approach is, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, get out of here. Because she forgives and overlooks, and then it just builds up, and then and so she was basically describing the problem that you and I were just talking about. You know, as you don't take care of it, it's going to get worse. Interesting. So she's, she's working on that. Okay. Um, so uh, so we you know obviously you learn a lot from your students, which means that you're you're a very open person because I think you know when we reach a certain stage of our career and we've had certain accomplishments, it's easy for us to think that we know it all and to sort of close our hearts and our minds to, to learning from the people that we're supposed to teach. So I'm really glad to hear that you, uh, it sounds to me like you're learning every day from the people that you teach. Yeah, absolutely. And they keep you young. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so at Stanford, you're, you're also, you're teaching aspiring entrepreneurs um, as well. Um, how do these, uh, you know, ambitious millennials react to your position about trust? Do they relate to that? Well, it's interesting. I think they're, this is a wary generation. They're not joiners. They've seen uh, the problem with borrowing a lot of money to go to school and, uh, you know, ending up with big debts. They've seen buying a home doesn't necessarily always mean uh, financial success. So there's a lot of things they've been told their whole lives that haven't necessarily worked out. So they tend to come in a little bit wary. On the other hand, I find that when you give them a pathway and say, here's how you develop trust, here's how you build a high trust organization, it, when you can kind of factor analyze what makes up trust and high trust organizations, they're relieved. They want to trust. I mean, human beings want to be loved. They want to love. They want to be loved and they want to trust and rely on things. They love predictability. Uh, actually, if you're predictable as a leader, i.e. people can trust you, they are empowered. They then can make decisions yep. without fear. And so one of the things that you do, I think, if to build a high trust organization is you make really clear what your values are. You become completely predictable. And I always say that you should be making only 51-49 decisions. 70-30 mm -hmm. stuff, 
other people. If you find yourself making 70, 30 decisions, you've not empowered your team. You don't entrust them. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. figure it out. Yeah. And, and it's funny because that's the third of the three R's, which is revitalizing, which is that you, that as a leader, you need to empower others to reach their, their highest self, you know, their, their, their highest capability and inspire them to do so. It's not about what we can do. We're already there. We've already made it. It's about how we're empowering others um, to, to take, to take up where we left off. So um, so that, that was very inspirational as well. Thank you. Um, if you want to increase the power of your organization, drive power down to its furthest uh, nodes. Because mm-hmm. that will actually increase the power. People who hoard power actually diminish the capability of the organization. It becomes less powerful. Its people are less powerful. And typically, they're less happy. So one of the laws of trust is to drive power deeply into the organization. You know, it's interesting, uh, and you've you've mentioned love, you've mentioned happiness, you've mentioned empowerment. It's just, it's so interesting to me how, especially in recent years, and maybe it is the influence of this, you know, this gen, this next generation, you know, Gen Y and Gen Z. Um, but it, it's it seems to me that um, the the whole comp- the whole um concept of happiness in the workplace depends on um you know uh, a sense of belonging a sense of um tr- uh, a sense of trust that then um defines and drives investment of that individual and teams in, in the organization itself because if not you know what, what? What we're left with, we might be good at what we do, and we might even be able to pick up a paycheck. But there's a huge difference between picking up a paycheck uh, and and being invested in your in the in your organization and in the outcomes. Yeah, I always say that uh, people want to be a respected member of a winning team doing something meaningful. Yep. And if you can, if you can get all three of those right. You know, so that people really feel respected. They know that what you're doing is going to succeed and they, and it connects with their values. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to attract and keep really great people. Uh, and so it's a pretty simple formula. It's not easy to execute always on, but it's a pretty simple formula. Let me, let me uh, ask you, um, as, as, the, as the chairman of JetBlue Airways and as the author of this book, um, <clears throat> In, in terms of reaching out to our listeners who, as you know, are uh, individuals who are very deeply interested in um, inclusion, diversity and inclusion, but especially um, inclusive organizations, um, do you have any advice for them as to how to incorporate the concept of trust into the work that they do for their organizations? So um, I don't want to be promoting this book, really, but I would say that there, you can factor analyze trust. And it really, it comes down to what are, the, what are the drivers of trust? How do you show respect? And so if you look at all these, tw- these 10 laws, they each become sort of peers driven all the way into bedrock. So that you have a really firm foundation upon which to build trust. Because it, like you said at the beginning, you know, trust can break down pretty easily. It's what I call one-way sticky. You know, it, 
it could go one way pretty, it, you, you build it up a, a layer at a time, a conversation at a time, a behavior at a time, and you can destroy it in a minute. You know, so if yep, you know that's for sure. what all these principles are, then you can actually be, uh, be uh, intentional about uh, setting it up. You know, in the, in the latest edition of this book, we have a diagnostic tool that oh, allows you to figure out, you know, what is the trust level of my organization? So by answering 10 questions, you can say, oh boy, we're a low trust organization. And then you can start to do things to address it. Okay, that's, that's good to know. That's good to know. Very good to know. Um, so, and you've alluded to the, the 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 ten the ten principles or the ten laws, I should say, of trust. I, I don't want you to give away all of them because then no one will read your book. But <laughs> but um, just just tease a few of them for us before we conclude this podcast. Well, one of them it would be communication. You know, now we communicate in all kinds of ways, but I say, you know, there's almost, it's almost impossible to communicate too much. You should communicate lavishly. And that means bad news as well as good news. It means before, during, and after events. But it means you don't communicate by rumor. People don't learn things by reading the newspaper or listening to them at the water cooler. You <laughs> are open, transparent. You're just a fountain of information. You know, uh, when I was at Crow, I used to write out a, uh, a partner letter every every two weeks. Now at JetBlue, we sent somebody from our C-suite sends out a letter every single week to all 25,000 employees. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a communication. And we don't like anything to go out over the wire before we've sent it out to our employees. We want them to hear first from us. So that kind of communication builds trust. And if people ever feel like they've been sneaked up on, or worse yet, if they feel like you've spun something, spin is, you know, this delivering bad news on a Friday afternoon of Super Bowl weekend actually destroys trust. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, th I think communicating openly, clearly, transparently, lavishly is uh, is one of the principles. It's interesting that, that, that you say that, you know, you, you, you do that at JetBlue before uh, information goes out to the general public. I would think that 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 honor and privilege of being brought into the fold from senior leadership um, bring brings about a tremendous amount of loyalty. Um, you know, even when there's bad news, or maybe especially when there's bad news. Especially. If I'm yeah, if I'm an employee and my um, my senior leadership has entrusted that information to me so that I don't feel blindsided when I'm, you know, out and about with friends and family and colleagues and somebody says, Oh yeah, you know, I heard about such and such, you know, if I've heard about it first and if I understand, um, you know, the, the complexities of it and I've had the privilege of knowing ahead of time, that's going to make a huge difference in terms of my loyalty to the organization when I have these conversations externally. For sure. Mm -hmm. So I spoke at our uh, orientation this last uh, year, I guess just even this summer uh, down in Orlando. And it turns out that we're harder to get a job with than it is to get into Stanford or Harvard. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just really, so people love it and they talk to friends about it because we've built this level of trust. And then we even have what we call bloomerangs. The bloomerangs are the people who worked for us once, left, and they said, she came back. back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, A lot of it is because of the things we're talking about. <laughs> 
Any any um, any uh, sort of examples or stories that you have in during your career about building trust? Um, you know, either across culture, you know, across national cultures, or uh, or gen or across genders, or across any sort of differences that people have. Well, I think it starts out with understanding how much more powerful uh, an organization is with these uh, differences. Um, I, what, what I always describe is it's like an orchestra. You know, you wouldn't want to listen to an orchestra of oboes. That would be miserable. So it sure would. Yeah, it's the different timbers that, that really make for great music. On the other hand, you wouldn't want to listen to an, orca listen to an orchestra that everybody was playing a different sheet of music, a different composition. So there's this idea of how do you make sure that you get people with different points of view, different timbers, different ways of looking, but you get them all on the same page. You know, Joel, do you realize that you just gave the perfect metaphor for um, diversity um, and inclusion in the sense that, so, so the first part of your metaphor about all oboes would be the diversity piece of it, right? We want to be, we want to have as many different kinds of voices as as possible and the second part of what you said is about inclusion because you want those voices or those instruments to be harmonious and to be working together in an orchestrated manner so you really i mean that was a phenomenal metaphor <laughs> yeah no, anyway, do, do you mind if i borrow it from time yeah, to time <laughs> okay all right i like that a lot a lot um, well, I have to tell you, I am thrilled that we invited you, thrilled that you accepted. I think that what you have said has uh, will resonate uh, with, with all of our listeners. I hope they do buy your book, even though you're not promoting it, because I think it is um, uh, a testament to getting back to our roots in terms of values that lead to the kinds of business results that we want for all of our colleagues and uh, clients. So I feel, I feel very good about the message that you have conveyed today. Well, even more important than that, Denise, I think it really makes people feel happier and more loved and more productive and more connected. And I think that I worry about people who feel disconnected from families, from companies, yep. from society. And building trust, you know, it it's, it's work, but it's really gratifying. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. That whole concept of belonging is the reason that we exist as a company. So you have, you, you have my, my uh, collegiality and sisterhood on that one. Perfect. All right. All right, Joel, um, please uh, say hi to all of your colleagues uh, at JetBlue, all of your students at Stanford, uh, all of your partners uh, at your various wonderful uh, institutions. Uh, and, and thank you for um, uh, joining us here today and gracing us with your presence. Nice to be with you, Denise. Thanks. All right. See you soon. Bye now.